Hello, and welcome to Paramedicast. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Paramedicast. Today, we're joined by Kane Overton. Kane is a paramedic who grew up in Essex, is now based in the Northeast. He's a combat medical technician and a former UK Special Forces medic. He's currently serving with the British Army as a medical reservist with 335 Medical Evacuation Regiment. In this episode, we will discuss Kane's unique career journey through becoming a combat medical technician to becoming a newly qualified paramedic. We will explore Kane's experience gained within the military and his various roles and discuss Kane's mindset and why Kane wants more recognition for military medics within the ambulance service and the civilian pre-hospital emergency medicine arena. Kane, it's great to have you on the podcast. Hello, Sophie. Thanks for having us. So, Kane, we're going to start with the beginning of your journey then. So you began your career as a combat medical technician, or CMT for short, within the British Army. So why did you join the Army? Oh, to be fair, I left school with pretty much pretty average qualifications. You know, and I really struggled with subjects that weren't applicable to a task. Um, so like maths, you know, I could do like add, subtract, divide, multiply, pass that in the algebra, not a chance. Um, so really average, average qualifications. Always enjoyed being outside, playing football, liked an adrenaline rush. And at the time, it was sort of, you know, when Herrick was ongoing in Afghanistan. Um, and I remember seeing it on the TV all the time. And there were some pretty good adverts for the army at the time as well. The ones today probably wouldn't capture me, but the ones back then, slightly more appealing. And you could see the challenges that are presented in them adverts and talking to people that were already in the army. Um, it just really appealing. So I thought I'd join and then obviously when you go into careers office, you get a choice of like what role you want to do. And a bit of my mind was thinking about joining a fire brigade. So I went and did a look at life of them over like a couple of months. And there was like a first aid, a couple of days. And sort of the medical side of it appealed to me more than the firefighting side. So I thought, oh, let's, let's see what this uh, combat medical technician stuff's all about. So with the, the medical side, what was it specifically about it that sort of got your interest? I think if you think about the firefighting thing, there's a lot to learn in that that look at life enjoy that all you know liked confined spaces liked heights but the thing that got my heart rate up a little bit was the thought of looking after someone that's potentially poorly and really your the your knowledge and you know skills are probably the difference between that patient you know getting better potentially and surviving or or not and was your heart set on the army did you ever consider the royal marine route or going down the RAF route um, I actually went on, well, I don't tell many people this, but now it's out there, right? I actually applied for the Royal Marines um, when I was I literally 15 and nine months. Um, I went down to Limston and passed their, passed their sort of entry selection course. You did a bit more, bit more digging and basically you had to go in as like a general duties Royal Marine as opposed to going in directly as a medic. So I went, I went to the army. I'll probably get some grief from that off a few people, but that's <laughs> out there now. <laughs> So can you tell us about the role of a combat medical technician and what does it involve? I suppose a good place to start is the training, right? So you do your normal soldier training and then you go on to your, your med, military medical training, which is separate. I think it's about six, it was about six months. I can only tell you what it was and I don't know, I can't, I don't know what it is now. I think it's about six months, really trauma-focused, A&P as well. Being taught by people who'd probably just come back from Herrick, you know, so people who are quite experienced. There's a bit of primary healthcare stuff, so ankles, knees, you know, typical stuff that healthy people get up to. And the course really is aimed at the healthy adult, really, you know, which I probably paid for later on in my career, like where I am now. The role of a CMT, so 
I was posted to a medical regiment, which is mainly CMTs, nurses, and like junior doctors. As a medic in that regiment, my first role was to drive an armoured armored ambulance. So I wasn't really doing much clinical stuff. Um, I was maintaining something called a bulldog. Wasn't really interested in it, but had to do it. So I applied myself. And that opened up opportunities, I suppose, but wasn't really doing much medicine. So that was initially as a CMT. And then later down the line, I suppose you can post out into different units, which obviously, which I went on to do. Um, but as a CMT in a medical regiment, I didn't do much uh, medical stuff, unfortunately. What does your typical day-to-day look like as a CMT? So my experience, I probably, you put Monday to Friday, right? Normally a late start on a Monday and early finish on a Friday. And in the mornings, you normally do, you know, an hour's uh, physical training as, as a group, probably as a squadron. And then you probably have a parade after that. Get, you know, your jobs for the day if there is any. So make maintaining equipment. There is some training, you know, if there's some proactive seniors around, you'll do some medical training, weapons training. And then you know, maintain the bulldog. It's, it's mad, right? So you just have to make sure the vehicles are fit for whatever exercise was coming up. Um, and equally, medical equipment as well. But I was ba- mainly based on an armoured ambulance, which is interesting, right? When you join the army as a combat medical technician, you end up looking after vehicles. I'm not mechanically minded at all either. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kane, just curious to know, what age were you when, when you joined the army? I was 17, yeah. So you're quite young then. How did you find it being so young and then going straight into the army? I'd worked, I'd worked since a young age. So I was probably a little bit more mature when it comes to sort of work life. I think I was a greengrocer from the age of like 14, <laughs> selling, selling apples and pears at five o'clock in the morning. And then, uh, yeah, joined the army at 17. I think when you go through your initial training, it's all ages, right? So it can be from someone who's 17 up to, you know, in their 30s. Well, I think 35 is the cutoff. So all ages. So you you learn from people's life experience during them 14 weeks initial training and it makes you grow up right because if you don't grow up you uh I don't know you find yourself doing a lot of press-ups. <laughs> so can you mention that you went through some training then so what opportunities and what did this training involve to become a CMT? To become a CMT it's so a training to become a CMT like I said it's, it's about six months trauma focused with regards to placements and things like that, it really is the primary healthcare placements that you get. You know, you, the army's full of GPs, so it's easy to give you a placement with a GP. And most of the work, you know, if you're deployed as a CMT, is, is primary healthcare. We like to think it's all trauma and saving lives, but actually that's probably 10% of the, of the work. 90% is sprain strains, headaches, you know, ear infections. So most of the training is, is primary healthcare focused. Opportunities. Most of my opportunities didn't come on, come until later on um, in my career. I did the, probably my first big exercise um, as a CMT was to Canada. But same again, like I was deployed there. It was, it was a wicked experience. And basically I pl- deployed to Canada for like three months, done like two months exercising. So I was a driver, obviously. So I used to drive an armoured ambulance with some medics and doctors in the back, and just driving around a mock battlefield to, from point of wounding back to sort of a roll one. So I was there for two, well, three months, two, two months of that was exercise and a month of that was travelling. So that's, that's a great opportunity in itself. Right? I'd have probably never gone to Canada hadn't I took that job as a driver. Uh, well, later on as a CMT, went to Ukraine. So did a lot of training jobs. So I think Afghan was finish, finishing just as I qualified as CMT. Um, so I missed that opportunity. Went to, did a lot of teaching tasks. They call it S-Triple-T's. I can't remember what it stands for. 
who went to Ukraine, teaching Ukrainian soldiers, which is quite relevant now, eh? When you think back, like, probably trained some of the soldiers that, that are fighting today. So there's a few opportunities, but most of my more interesting opportunities didn't come until later on um, in my career. It's interesting how you had a lot of exposure to primary care. So I'm going to go into that primary care element then. So you said you spent a lot of placement time with the GPs. Like, did you enjoy that time or would you prefer to be more like out on the ground trauma training? I think I'm definitely more interested in the trauma training, right? But you have to manage your expectations and notice that actually you can be fantastic at the trauma care, right? But if you're not good at the other 90% of your job, you're probably not that credible as a medic and you're probably going to struggle with a company company of infantry soldiers, you know, and your main job as a medic medical team is to maintain your soldiers so they can fight, essentially. If you can't keep them comfortable with their ear infection, they're either not going to be able to fight or they're going to be ineffective when they are fighting, which is dangerous. Initially, when I started the GP stuff, well, the primary healthcare stuff, I didn't know enough about it to enjoy it if that makes sense and that's probably very similar to now when I can't go to urgent care jobs you know I probably don't know enough to enjoy one of them roles permanently I think you just got to take it in your stride haven't you you know because you're getting you're getting dedicated time with an expert in that field sir so just lap it up really so what did you enjoy most about the role of a CMT it's like working with your friends right you wake up in the morning go to the gym with your friends you know you go to work with your friends Whatever, you, whatever task you're doing, whether it's taking a track off an armoured ambulance, you're doing it with your pals, right? So it's always going to be a laugh whether it's raining or not. And then the opportunities to travel, definitely. I think whilst I was a CMT, one of, one of the best two years of my life happened to me, you know, when I went skiing for two years around Europe. I'd have never got to do that once again if I didn't take the job. So the thing I probably enjoyed most about being a CMT was skiing. <laughs> so when, when you were away in Europe then for two years skiing, were you looking after the squads or were you purely there for adventurous training no no purely there in a sort of a competitive manner um, and training manner so I think I, did, I think I first did it in 2013 just started as sort of the regimental ski team there's a couple of officers running it so I thought oh, I'll do that you know it's a bit of fitness if nothing else I was actually okay at it and then ended up doing it the next year but we I think we qualified a bit higher the year after so that, that meant we got more time out of work to train and then go ski again so it's pretty much two years of uh, full skiing. So you're competing for the army ski team then? Army medical services, yeah, against other other units essentially. Wow, that's incredible! I didn't know that. that was such an amazing opportunity. Yeah, it's good. The only bad thing it was the uh, the painful type of skiing. It wasn't a downhill fancy up with ski. It was a biathlon <laughs> in cross country. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a different spin, it then. Yeah, I don't think I could do it these days with extra ten kilograms. <laughs> <laughs> where do you think things could improve as a CMT? So I think I think the army's full of like clinicians that work in these amazing roles. We've got consultants working in major trauma centres, air ambulance services and charities. We've got nurses working on wards, GPs and GP, GP surgeries. But well, what we seem to had, I don't know if it's changed now. We used to have CMTs, you know, sat around counting equipment, fixing armoured vehicles. And then deploying to look after potentially sick patients. So one week you could be fixing an armoured ambulance, and next week you're on a range cover where people are throwing grenades around. And I wonder if that's best best use for that medic when we could perhaps send CMTs two days a week or something to sit with GPs or sit with these consultants, do some airways, do some wound wound care in practice. I think that would definitely improve retention, morale, 
few other things and patient care, right? So I think that's definitely an area where it could could improve. So Kane, we're going to move on and go into your experience game later on in your journey. So can you tell us about your route into the more specialist units? I think this is how it, you know, works a few ways in the military and a few a few um, job settings. Is some sometimes you meet someone right who's done that job before, um, and they give you an opportunity. So I met I met a guy who used to work with, with the special units, and he invited me down because he was going back for a training day. So I went along with him. And as soon as I went into sort of the atmosphere, I walked in the office and you could just tell that everyone had the same thought process. You know, they were highly motivated. There was a good attitude, even between sort of the officers and the soldiers. There was a good sort of rapport, you know, and you could see that from the offset and it's a nice environment to work in. So then a couple of weeks later, I did some digging to figure out how, you know, how do I I work with these people? Because I'd never heard of it, right? I was used to skiing and fixing armoured vehicles. I'd never heard of this world. Did some digging. Basically, I, I spoke to one of the staff sergeants who's basically a manager within the unit. I said, how do I join? And at the time, the the Special Forces Medic Course was going through a transition from something called Black Serpent to the Special Forces Medic Course to what it was when I'd done it. Um, so there wasn't a, a rigid way into the into the organisation. So he said, if you go to a course called P Company, which is basically a fitness course, probably one of the worst things I've ever done, we'll post you in. So I went and he loaded me onto the course. I went and done it past just about minus two tibias. And then um, he posted me in pretty much like a week later. And there I was. And then lo and behold, about a year later, he said, right, you've got to go to the SFM now. So that's when I've done that. Um, and that was my foot in the organisation. And what was it that made you want to go in this direction? Was it just to be part of that high performance team? Was the people, motivation? What was it specifically that just got you gripped? Yeah, so same again, like I was a young lad probably 21, 22. I didn't really think anything about high-performing teams. I just thought this is a nice working environment. Speaking to the people there, they did some pretty cool stuff that I didn't even know was going on. And I was like, right, so I've joined the military to go on Herrick. That's gone. What's the next best thing? Who's actually doing the job? And I think actually doing the job was one of the big things of, one of the big reasons I wanted to go to that organisation. How different was this to your previous role? Oh, the responsibility, honestly, just sh- shot up straight away. I could tell from as soon as I, was, I, po- I posted in. in. In the previous unit, I could probably, you know, I, I wouldn't. But if I didn't turn up to work that day, someone else would have probably done my job. Whereas the new unit, you, you had a dedicated role. And you should look after anything to do with medically, so vaccinations, audio, medical training. Um, and these guys were on high notice to move, right? So you need to be good to go most of the time. So the responsibility was through the roof. And if, if I didn't do my job, you'd get found out or someone would deploy unsafely or someone would deploy without the appropriate training. And you're talking about groups of people who uh, deploy in small numbers. So if someone's not medically trained in that group, someone gets hurt, obviously it's not great for that team. Um, and also the clinical skills, you know, as a CMT, I felt pretty comfortable with the scope of practice and the medications. The medications were very limited and scripted to what we could do. Whereas when you went on to into the organisation, the scope, scope of practice just widened massively when you started including surgical skills, uh, more advanced drugs. So there's a, so a steep learning curve, but it was a guided learning curve and it supported learning, you know, and everyone understood that it was a steep learning curve when you went into the organisation. And when did you go on your first operational deployment and did you feel ready? So I went probably about three years after I was in the organisation because I had to do a special force medic course before I could deploy there. Did I feel ready? I, I didn't feel that I was credible enough to go because I'd only done exercises before. 
And now you're in an organisation with probably the best soldiers in the world um, who have done probably five, six, seven operational tours. Um, and I've done none. I've done some skiing and some exercises in Canada. So I was definitely didn't feel like I was credible. Clinically, pre-deployment training we did, you know, was fantastic. But simulation, simulation, right? And how are you going to react when you see your first casualty? And when I did see my first casualty is, it, it went okay, right? But it, it could have been smoother if I'd had some real patient expo- exposure plot, uh, prior to that. So it was already probably not, but it, but it was okay. And can you share with us some of your experiences of operational deployment without obviously disclosing any confidential or restricted information? I think probably the best place to start is like the lead up to an opera- operation. So you get given your team. Um, and I was in a, uh, one of two medics within team. Obviously, we do pre-deployment training. So that's both your, your green soldier skills and then your military pre-deployment training, which is normally run by like HEMS consultants. So it's really high fidelity and it's people that are doing day, day, day in, day out, right? And the soldiering skills allows you to block, to bond with that team and then probably build that credibility that I didn't have before. Um, so they, they can trust you a little bit more, you know, as opposed to just being an outsider. So there's a lead up to it and that's where you build your rapport and get your trust so you can get used on operations. Then you normally get into your operation, do some acclimatization, do a handover takeover, figure out what equipment you're going to need and what you're going to be doing for that operational tour. And then... You know, once you're in the theatre of operations, you then start to wait for tasks to come through, essentially. Um, and then when you do get a task, you know, obviously you get told your orders and what the operation is going to be. As a medic, you obviously have to do medical planning and that, which is complex in itself, especially if you're in some country that doesn't have hospitals of the same standard to us. So you've got to start considering, are we going to move? How are we going to get a casualty from point of wounding onto a vehicle? What vehicles are going to be? Is it going to be a helicopter? Is it going to be a... Uh, a transit van and where we're going to take them to after we're going to take them to a, a hospital that we've set up or that someone else has set up and then how we're going to get them back to sort of a role three or role four in Birmingham it's a it's a complex task it's not just your landing country and get on with it and it all falls into place it is it takes some complex planning probably much like expeditions does that answer your question sorry <laughs> I don't even know if that's answered your question <laughs> yeah that's great so broadly speaking, what type of casualties were you seeing or treating? In the firm base, like I said, just, you know, people probably deadlifting too much and hurting their backs or getting ear infections, rolling ankles, just, just day-to-day stuff that, you know, you, you probably expect young athletic people to come across. They're nothing too major, really. And then obviously out on the ground, you're coming across your, your major trauma, polytrauma patients, and that can be obviously NATO or UK forces, or it can be local forces that you're perhaps supporting. And that comes with a whole other bundle of issues, looking after a local troop with ethical issues, potentially. Do they fall within our treatment regime? Who do we treat? Who do we not? But luckily that's laid out in the orders process. So it's wide, really, varying from the minor to the really extreme. And can you share your experience of any challenging environments or any incidents? I don't know if it's the best way to put it. Probably my best experience was in a country, basically, that was at war. We were just a small team, myself and a doctor. Basically, the, the local hospital was taking loads of casualties, but their survival rates were really poor and they didn't really have the sort of resuscitation capability that we had. So basically, we just embedded in the hospital. We basically took their casualties. And it was about 40 minutes from point of wounding to get to us. So they'd get really minimal treatment at point of wounding, maybe some improvised hemorrhage control. 
And then you get a lot of people come in with bilateral large IVs with a litre of fluid run for each, and that was it, put them in an ambulance and bring them back to us. So we were probably seeing a survival bias, right? The really sick people were dying before they got to us, and we were getting people on the cusp. So basically, we just ordered loads of equipment, as much equipment as we can, used the local medical equipment as well, which was quite interesting, and just resuscitated any patient that they'd bring to us trauma-wise. So it'd be any time. There was no like pre-warning of when a patient was coming. You'd literally just get the sirens come through the front gate, and that was you out your bed into the hospital. And we probably seen over 200 patients, you know, within a week. And the sort of skills we were doing were from hemorrhage control, airway management, couple of surgical airways, you know, loads of penetrating trauma to the chest. So lo- loads of um, folicostomies, loads of analgesic, like ketamine sedations, pulling femurs. So real good emergency resuscitation medicine that perhaps we don't get exposure to back here, right? So yeah, and, and that whole episode brought so many challenges. It wasn't just the care, it was the triage, right? So you'd get out of your bed and there'd be three patients in the back of an ambulance and me and a doctor and some locals who have broken English. Um, so who do you treat first? And it just presents so many difficulties, especially when you've not perhaps done that much trauma before. But yeah, that's probably one of the best experiences I've had. And I've learned a lot from it about myself and, and patient care. Kane, I'm interested to know, you mentioned some really interesting things there. So you were faced with a lot of situations you'd not necessarily dealt with before and these sort of mass casualty or multiple injured patients. Did you have any training prior to deal with those situations? Yeah, so CMT training is definitely plenty of, you know, mass casualty, triage scenarios and training training throughout that. Um, so I think what they base the training on is lessons learned from operations, right? And Afghanistan was just going on. So they probably learned a lot from that and put it into the training, which is, which is fantastic. And then on the SFM course, you do the MIMS course as one of the, one of the elements of that major incident medical management. And then, yeah, on pre-deployment training, there'd been previous CC casualty collection points set up. Um, so we sort of predicted it. And I think, did it help? It definitely, it definitely did help um, to have an awareness of how you're going to deal with that mass casualty incident. Does it all come together on the day? Not as smooth as it does in the training moment, but it definitely has a, definitely has a role to play. By being and joining these specialist units, was it what you expected? Yeah, everything and more, if you ask me. So, so I was quite, do I call it luck? I don't know. I would say I was quite lucky. I was in the right place, the right time, maybe with the right team that made things happen. Some people before me wasn't so lucky. And yeah, everything I expected and more, to be honest here. So why did you want to leave? After I'd finished that tour, I felt like I'd t- ticked all the boxes, right? I don't think much trumps that, both from a soldiering perspective and a clinical perspective in the military. And I was probably going to promote to a sergeant so I'd have started managing people and I like to think I'm still fairly young and I've still got a few more years of running around in me um so that factor and then once I finished the tour I went I went to study paramedicine at Swans University while still in the army and then left upon completion so I just wanted to consolidate the learning you know and studying as a paramedic just widened my horizons and that you know, not everything's twisted ankles or major trauma. There's there's so much more out there in, in medicine. And although chronic diseases aren't really my favourite subject, they are quite interesting the more you learn about them and learn how to manage them in the, in the pre-hospital environment. So I just want to consolidate that. So how did you find it then transitioning into civilian paramedic practice and leave on your role as a medic? I definitely missed a few factors initially, and it's, it was a um, transition process, definitely. 
Um, and if I think back to when I was in, definitely a different character to what I am now. I think the stressful and sort of high acuity situations I was in the military have definitely, I don't know if they've adrenaline proofed me, if, if that's the correct term. I don't get as much as an adrenaline spike as I probably perhaps would have if in a civilian world if I hadn't had experiences before. So, you know, it's a much less stressful environment in civilian world, I think. And also it just exposes you to so many different people, right? Different cultures, different languages, people who are poor, rich, you know, and that I think that translates into the civilian world, especially in the UK now. The demographics wide, right? So that definitely helps when communicating um, with different cultures or providing care for different different patient groups. And I think I was quite lucky when I left the military. I I went and worked for an independent provider, Cypher Medical Consultancy, and they're a heavily veteran organisation, you know, so a lot of their staff are from a military background, whether that's Army, RAF, whatnot. So it was almost like a mini army ambulance service, you know, so really supportive. They could help me out, you know, like silly little things like, I've been in the army since I was 17, right? I've never paid for dentists before. <laughs> you know, stupid things like that that you don't think of when you leave. So yeah, they kept me right. And then I worked for them for a year and then went to NIAS. Um, so I think that was a good transition process going through that. But yeah, there's a lot of crossover. How did you find it being a student paramedic? Because to me, you went from, you know, you were pretty much, I guess you could say top of your game in the military medic world to suddenly being a student again in the civilian world. How did you find that? I had wicked mentors, right? So I worked with Connor and Mike. Yeah, I think you know Connor Morgan. <laughs> yeah. um, so they're like both the opposite ends of the spectrum. One's young, mega, probably the best family I've ever met. And then Mike's done it for 30 years. You know, really happy-go-lucky kind of man. So I was so lucky. And I think they appreciated that. I had an awareness of some things, but equally, like it, it become to like quite fast that I didn't know anything about elderly people or children. And they really coached that well. So there's definitely some gaps in knowledge. And I had the the true fear that a lot of people get if a peed come up on the terror fix. But I think with learning and a bit of experience, that settles, but definitely some gaps in knowledge as a, as a student paramedic. And were you treated any differently? Obviously, you had this, you know, you had a wealth of experience behind your belt before you even started. So were you treated differently on placement or did everyone see you as a student? No, I think I just introduced myself as student paramedic Kane. You know, what I've done before, I see, I see as not irrelevant. It's all experience, but it's a very different job. And ultimately, I was, I was the new the new kid, you know, in a student paramedic uniform. So I think people treat you with, with respect, you know, and you always gonna have the people that don't like the students or the NQPs, right? But you just got to surround yourself with the good people who are supportive. And I was lucky enough to have two supportive mentors. So, Kane, you've previously mentioned that during your course, you felt very much at the bottom of the Dunning-Kruger curve. You were discovering known unknowns. Can you expand on this? Yeah, so I think like um, when you train as a CMT, you have no experience, but you feel really confident, right? Because you've just been taught medical skills and trauma resuscitation by these people who have just been to war. So you're probably like at the peak of Mount Stupid. If you look at the diagram on Google, of the, you know, the <laughs> Dunning-Kruger curve, you're literally at the peak of Mount Stupid. And then... You know, you you do your SFM course, you become a little bit more confident because now you're a special forces medic. Then that sound great, right? You get a little bit more exposure to, to medicine and clinical skills. And you get some good placements, right, with like air ambulance, med serve, wells. You do some, you know, high acuity stuff, but still you're thinking like, don't quite think I could do this on my own if there wasn't a consultant 
anaesthetist here and a critical care paramedic with me, you know, so you sort of think, oh, there's more to this business. And then sort of, I think you do your, your, your NQP. And for me, I was like, Oof, I don't know if I can do this. You know, if I went to a car crash, I think I'd be okay. But it's the, it's the, the ones in the grey area who should they go to hospital, should they not? And then I've just started a master's. And honestly, I sit in the classroom with some of them people. And I just, I just feel like I'm inadequate. I shouldn't be in a room with them sort of people, you know. So it's just ups and downs, isn't it, really? And I think sometimes the more you know, does that make everything more complicated? You know, is it best to keep it simple? But I don't think that's the best for the patient. But it's just ups and downs. And I think if you accept that as part of the journey, um, you'll probably be okay. And I think um, I listened to the Jamie uh, Walsh podcast He's probably one of my fav- favorite blokes in the northeast. If I could be ten percent of what he is, I'll be happy. And I think he said it just—the knowledge just doesn't just come to you. It doesn't just happen like that. It just takes time and a bit of dedication. And it's so refreshing to hear someone with a brain like his say that. Just ups and downs, accept it. <laughs> <laughs> so, Kane, I believe you have recently finished your newly qualified paramedic journey. How did you find your days as an NQP and undergoing the preceptorship? like I said a lot of jobs urgent care right so um and I had I managed my expectations for that and I think I did find it a bit mundane but as I start to learn more about it I started to enjoy it more and you know you can affect the bigger system by you know using alternative pathways as opposed to a and I think that's what I find the enjoyment out of them jobs are even though they do become repetitive you can actually re- reduce a bit of pressure on a overpressured system I had supportive mentors. I was in a new geographical area in the northeast. I work in Newcastle City Centre. So it's a, it's a bit of a nightmare driving around. So everyone was always supportive. And even my line manager, like, you know, you said I've just completed my NQP. She allowed me to fast track and she was fully supportive of that and appreciated my previous experience. I think you've just got to manage your expectations that, you know, not every job's going to be high acuity and just ask for feedback, you know, off hospital staff so you can, you know, figure out what the outcome was for each patient and learn from that and just take any opportunity you can really. I mean, that's what I did and I think it's helped, helped okay. And can you tell us about your frustrations or any resistance that you received within the ambulance service with relation to your prior military experience and qualifications? So obviously I wrote the article and I think it came across that I was a little bit frustrated with the ambulance service, but it wasn't personally my ambulance service. You know, like I said, mine have been fully supportive. They've allowed me to fast track. They've considered my past experience so far. But I think sometimes these ambulance services advertise jobs, you know, so if it's like specialist paramedic or critical care paramedic, they put this random five years post-qualification criteria on it, which gets rid of a lot of people who have got previous experience in different areas. So ultimately that allows you not to be able to apply for that job for five years so I'd have to sit on an ambulance for five years before I could apply for something like that which is quite frustrating also speaking to a few colleagues that have left recently you know I've got a mate who works for another well works in a different area he's qualified just qualified as an NQP he's had 13 years as an army medic been all over the world looked after the sickest people in the worst places he's a nilo there's only 35 of them in the country I think um, and he's gone to an ambulance service saying look can I have a job and they've basically said no because you've not done an NQP so it is a bit frustrating. Another frustration. So I went on an advanced life support course, which I highly recommend. Really good course. I've done it previously as part of the SFM, probably eight years ago now. Went to requalify and I got an instructor pass right. And then they, they uh, withdrew the instructor pass because 
I had the NQP status despite doing cardiac arrest weekly and being previously previously you know qualified so that's just this is just a few frustrations on the whole I actually think people are really supportive um, and if you look on NHS jobs they normally have like an armed forces veteran agreement that basically if you meet the criteria they guarantee you an interview you know so there is definitely support out there. Okay and I'm just going to share with our listeners then about the article so so our listeners can find it and have a read of it you wrote basically a reflection on your journey as a combat medical technician to becoming a paramedic and this was an article within the college of paramedics insight magazine and it was a september issue 2022 so i highly advise anyone who's interested definitely go and have a read the article it was really interesting and you said some really interesting things and i hope you don't mind but i'm just gonna read out some of the things that I've highlighted, if that's okay. (laughs) Go for it. So you mentioned the ambulance service has not recognised the previous experience or qualifications gained during the military, despite social media posts and advertisement about the benefits of recruiting and supporting veterans. So you've mentioned that already with regards to some of your prior experience and application, but you have said that some trusts or some organisations, and such as HEMS paramedic roles, have considered your prior experience and allowed you the opportunity to demonstrate my knowledge at their selection day. So are you able to share a little bit about that with us? So my, my end goal is to be a critical care paramedic right in a high-performing team. And I, I'll say that openly. Some people don't like to say it openly, do they? But I'll be open about it. That's what I want to do. Um, so I had the audacity to apply for a HEMS job here in the northeast sent in a cover letter as you do in a cv expecting nothing to come of it and then they invited me along for the selection day i think their criteria was four years post qualification i think i was probably 14 months at the time obviously just listed my military experience and i think there's a few hems consultants there that are military or ex-military at least um so i think that allows them to have an appreciation for what actually a different entry to paramedicine can bring because i'm not that sure that spending an extra four years on an ambulance going to low acuity calls actually prepares you that much for being in a high performing critical care team looking after major trauma patients definitely you need to do a couple of years right to get that the communication skills and the basics but i don't think five years adds that much especially if you've had a different background like yourself or or me so i was really grateful for that experience obviously i didn't get the job (laughs) but Nevertheless, it's probably one of the best learning experiences I've ever had. And I've never felt pressure like it. But what an experience and what a group of people. Um, so definitely, you know, relit my fire that some people do appreciate previous experience. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Kate. And it's actually just really refreshing that someone's come out with those comments. And, you know, the whole article, you know, you're quite open with what you say. And fair play to the College of Paramedics for, for actually publishing the article as well, because they give you a platform here, aren't they? They clearly support what you're saying and they want more people to listen to it and support it. And it's just interesting then when you applied for this and you got shortlisted. And I know it came of a surprise, but I'm just curious to go into this a bit more when you went on the selection day then, how did you feel and, and what kind of things sort of were you tested on, broadly speaking? Oh, Sophie, honestly, my, uh, my partner, Lindsay, for like the week leading up to it, I don't know what she had to put up with, but <laughs> I, was, I wasn't myself. And I'm quite self-aware and I've never, I honestly don't think I've ever felt like that before, any sort of exam or operation, but I couldn't eat, I was struggling to drink, I couldn't sleep the night before. And I was like, 
I'm literally not expecting to get the job, so why am I putting so much pressure on myself? So uh, I got down there. Obviously, they're really approachable people. They're really nice people. So they just make you feel at home. Didn't relax me in the slightest. And it was basically two simulations. I won't give it away because someone else might be competing against me next time, right? But um, <laughs> it was two simulations. Basic stuff, right, that a paramedic should be able to deal with. Went through the simulations. Felt okay, you know. You could feel there was nerves in the air um, when I was, I was anxious. But they went okay. And then there was a written um, theory paper, which was a lot of questions and not a lot of time. Um, I felt I revised okay for that. And then surprisingly, at the end, um, they did like a 20 question quick fire question where you sat in front of a camera and two big bright white lights. Right? It was just r- random questions, you know, like what's the most embarrassing thing you've ever done? If you could put one big wa- word on a billboard, what would it be? And obviously you can't prepare for that, right? And it's got to be PC as well, because it's going to be on a job interview. <laughs> <laughs> so um, that was interesting. And I'm not sure what was the most stressful bit, because it's all a blur. But the good thing is they, they give you really good feedback after. So you can obviously reflect on it and learn from it. It's it's good that they give you that feedback. And and I'm just curious, so have, you know, with that feedback then, you've obviously read it, you've you thought about it. How much have you tried to sort of progress yourself or put that into your practice to get better? One of the biggest things from that was probably the human factor side of it. My emotions leading up to it and then and then arriving there, even though I didn't expect anything of it. But that probably just shows you want a job and you're passionate, which is a good thing. That's an actual reaction. We can't do much about that. Um, what have I done since the feedback? Constantly just CPD, you know, like we should. I enrolled on a master's course, you know, just to get you thinking at that next level. And I think bosses, which I'll apply for when I've got the money because <laughs> they're quite expensive. And then also just volunteer, you know, I go down there. When they run their courses, I go down and just help out. If it's just moving stuff around, it's just a good environment. You can just pick people's brains, right? Yeah, absolutely. It sounds great. And um, can you tell us more about the master's then? Yeah, so I'm doing the um, pre-hospital medicine um, master's at Queen Mary's University in London. It's run by the faculty of pre-hospital care, um, London Ambulance. Um, Fantastic faculty, you know, people who are probably the best in Europe at what they do and it's all all the modules are applied so like I said earlier I can't learn anything if it's not applied to like a subject so all the modules I think there's like the one I'm doing now is pre-hospital resuscitation science you know so it's looking at cardiac arrest and all the guidelines and what are we doing what we're doing now is that actually the best thing to do the last module was toxicology you know it's really applicable modules to a paramedic on the road um, or in a critical care setting and I went to a symposium which was part of the part of the course over weekend, and you 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 sit in this room with all these people, right? Same again. You, you shouldn't be in a room with them people. Well, I shouldn't be anyway. And uh, it just gives you more questions than answers. I think I watched the presentations and I was like, I'm none of the wiser. I've just got more questions, you know. But the courses, the people on the course are paramedics, nurses, midwives, you know, so varied. I think there's some physios on it as well. Varied group of people. So you can just pick each other's brains. So, yeah, that's one of the, probably the main thing I'm doing to progress. And I think it is helping so far. And was that master's course recommended to you? Um, so I think Queen Mary's do a few. And I actually met Gareth Greer, who's sort of one of the course, or the head of the faculty, I believe, during a course I was running as an SFM for the, for the police. Um, so that's just another one of the things that, you know, being in the military gives you is this networking. So I'm not convinced with my CV that I'd have got a place on a master's course without knowing someone. <laughs> So, yeah, so it was recommended by a few people. Did your previous experience help or did you find that you had a lot to learn? In regards to the Masters or? 
with regards to the masters oh there's so much to learn i think what 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 we do as paramedics and what i've done was an SFM, mainly you're following a guideline right and i i think there's this attitude within paramedicine and probably pre-hospital care that you know you go to a cardiac arrest or you go to a trauma and people are like Ah, oh, straightforward. It's just an algorithm, right? Would you would you agree? There's that mentality. The cardiac arrest is just an algorithm. That's I think there's a, an attitude for that out there, but actually it's more nuanced than that. And doing this masters is just making that more, you know, making me more aware that what we're doing can be enhanced, and pro- probably what we're doing at the moment isn't the best. It's about one of the main focuses on the masters is tailoring the care to the patient as opposed to just following the guideline, ticking the boxes. Yes, I've given the journaling every three to five minutes. Is that actually best for the patient? I think that's one of the things it's it's really teaching me. Has any areas generated any interest and that you wish to look into? Oh, yeah, definitely. So one of the um, speakers on that symposium the other day was a Swedish guy. Um, I can't remember his name, but you can find him easy enough, I think. Basically, he's doing drone-delivered, yeah, drone-delivered AEDs um, in Sweden. He's actually, they've actually saved a couple of lives with it, and it's going quite well. And I think, particularly in the Northeast, there's probably scope for that. So I think uh, I might have to invest some time and procure some funding to have a look at that, I think. Kane, after having spent a lot of your career in very different environments, learning new skills and challenging yourself in different ways, has this given you a different perspective on your career and personal life? Personal life, definitely, because life, life's short, right? It can just disappear like that. So definitely, I've, you know, and being in the military, you spend, you know, loads of time away from your family, especially me and Lindsay, my partner, you know, we're both in the military, especially in the earlier years we were together and we never seen each other. Um, we're like ships in the night. So definitely you appreciate the time you spend with your family and your friends. Professionally, I work on an ambulance. So it's like working with your mucker anyway, but you go to work and you go home um, at the end of the day. So I definitely appreciate that. I can sit on the sofa and have a cup of tea with the missus and the dog. I don't have to worry about waiting for the weekend to see the partner. So I definitely appreciate that. Just going back to the College of Paramedics Insight Magazine article, you're a big advocate for military medics. And I just wondered if you've got any messages to any CMTs who want to transition into paramedicine. Just be aware that it might feel a bit slower than the pace of military life. There's probably a bit more freedom to take your time with things. Not everything's a rush because everything seems to be a rush in, in the military. It's hurry up and wait, right? But in the ambulance service, there's plenty of time to make sure you're doing the right thing for the right for the right person what else just just it's a, it's a different environment and a different mindset too so people you're working with uh, might have differing standards and different objectives in life you know some people like to come to work and do the bare minimum where you might still be highly motivated and you just want a job 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 after job um and i think that's one thing someone said to me um it was an army gp who was in the army left the army but rejoined a couple of years later and he said his time during the NHS, he said, be aware because they reward mediocrity in the NHS. So if you want to do something more, people look at you as perhaps arrogant or wanting to be better when actually you just want to have a maybe better job, job satisfaction or better patient care. So just be aware of that, you know, and I've definitely noticed that in practice that, like I said, I'm quite open about what I want to do in my career. Um, I, I don't mind hiding it because I hope it inspires other people. Um, but certainly when you say you want to do a master's, when you've been a paramedic for 14 months, people are like, why do, why do you want to do that? You shouldn't be doing that. But you just got to stick your head above the parapet and, you know, do what you think is best for your career and hopefully drag a few people with you 
I've certainly roped a few people into a masters. I think in a couple, you know, a couple of students are just about to finish. I think they're going to apply some masters, but and they'll probably hate me for it later. But you've just got to inspire who you can. I think is that really the perception that you've had then from others, sort of being surprised, being so early in career that you are doing a masters? Yeah, not just the masters. You know, when you say to people, "Are oh, like what are you doing at the weekend?" You say, oh, "I'm going to go go to the ambulance on my days off and just help out." they're like why why are you doing that you, you just like you know sometimes you've got to do stuff right that's unpaid in your own time to 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 go forward not everything's got to be paid I think these people always have that attitude and it's fine you know that they're probably they probably enjoying their role and they don't see the benefit of doing that which is fine but I think you've just got to do what's best for you and not be uh dragged down but try and drag a few people up with you yeah absolutely and you mentioned you're keen to inspire others there I'm just curious, since the article, have you had any interesting messages or feedback from it? Yeah, so it's it, all really positive, even from management within the because there's a few controversial bits, right? So I thought I might get a tap on the wrist or something, but all really positive. The, the first negative comment I had was literally about four days ago, and it's just one of them where you have to do the same thing and just, just ignore it, really. No, that's good to hear. Kane, you're willing to stand up for what you believe in. Your drive and invested interest for what you do really stands out in all your roles and work. Where has this drive come from and why do you continuously challenge yourself? I think the most obvious one is the patient really is a motivation, right? And there's no, there's nothing that motivates you more than one of your friends or one of your colleagues being injured that motivates you to be good at your medical job, right? So you need to be able to be you need to be able to prepare, provide good care for one of the troops. That's where my probably my primary motivation went come from in the army. And, and then on a wider picture, if you're on operations, caring for a local troop, you know, if you do good things for good people, they're likely to give you more back, right? It's so the hearts and minds side of things. And then the civilian world, you know, that's what we're here for as an NHS. That's what we're paid to do, isn't it? It's look after people. And then I think probably one people don't admit is selfishness. Um, we want to have a good job, right? We want to enjoy the job, job satisfaction. We want to work in the high-performing teams, you know, so so that's a big motivator. And I think, I, I seen a quote the other day, I think it was like a, a business quote, and I think someone said there, if you give five years of your life now, you'll reap the benefits later on. And that's what I always say to Lindsay, I'm like, look, if I do this for five years now, you'll get me later, I'll be a good dad, and you know, and all that. Um, so just invest now for the for the rest of your life. That's what one of my big motivations is. And I hope in a couple of years I can kick back and not have to write essays and whatnot. Are you content with your current achievements or is there more to do? Oh, there's always more to do. Is there anything specific that you've got your mind on? Definitely, I need to get through this Masters. Um, uh, I want to tick off the dip IMC. Obviously, want that job, don't I? <laughs> and, and then also from a, from a personal and sort of family point of view, you know, I need to be a better partner and probably, you know, probably spend more time with the family. So it's just about that balance, I think, Sophie, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. This this balance that everyone keeps going on about. <laughs> There's no such thing as balance. <laughs> do you ever have the fear of not being good enough? And how do you deal with failure when it comes? Oh, 100%. I think that Hems day is a perfect example, right? And that's probably the biggest time I've never felt good enough. I, I think I know, you know, as a paramedic on, a, on an ambulance, you know, if a trauma drug comes up, I'll probably be okay and I'll probably be, you know, probably excel. Um, but it's like I said, it's the urgent jobs. I know I'm pretty average at them, often use colleagues for support, but it's all part of the learning process, right? I know I've just finished an NQP, but I'm still a newly qualified paramedic, even if I'm not officially. And 
I've fouled plenty of times as well, which shows I've, I've not been good enough in a few areas. You know, I applied for the army paramedic course, went to interview and didn't get that spot. You just find a different route, reflect, learn, and then, and then move on to the next thing. And I think Conor Morgan said, I think he applied for his job a couple of times. And same again, he's probably one of the best paramedics I've met. And he just says, learn from it and move on, apply again and keep consolidating that learning. That's absolutely key, isn't it? So learn from it, consolidate it and apply again. So how do you balance all these commitments with being an NQP? So I know you're currently serving with the British Army with 335 Medical Evacuation Regiment. How are you finding that with with your role as a paramedic? So I think first, when I come out of the army, I was like, I need to do this, I need to do this to fill the gaps, right? Because, you know, you come from that high performing environment, quite a few adrenaline rushes, you know, and then you leave and you're a paramedic on an ambulance where, like I said, I did find it a bit money and it's got better. So I think I had to drop some of the things that wasn't adding as much. So for example, when I left, I joined the local RNLI. You know, I was trying to train for that, but I was, I was so useless. Um, I could probably pull someone out of the water and that was it. And I said, I had to say to him, look, I'm not adding anything to you, to your team and I'm not really gaining much. So I had to reduce that and stop doing that. And I think it's just get rid of the things that don't have an impact on your work or, or, or personal life and focus on what does. And, you know, spend the time at work, spend the time doing the uni stuff and studying. But equally, you've really got to enjoy the stuff, the time with your family, you know, um, and make the most of that. And that makes the balance feel a bit more in equi- equilibrium. How important is mental resilience to you? Uh, I think resilience is a buzzword that's bounced around a lot, isn't it? Um, I think I'm quite resilient. Not much other than that That day stresses me out, to want to see. And I think my peers say I'm quite calm, whether that's from experience or just from, just from growing up. I do question sometimes if I'm actually that resilient because not much tests test me on a daily basis I think if maybe I found myself into one of these critical care teams I'd become less resilient you know to the to the high, more high acuity stuff on a high volume basis so I think that's a challenge I'd look forward to probably maintain my resilience you know I'm a, I'm a big big believer of healthy mind oh sorry healthy body healthy mind um, you know so regularly exercise eat, eat well move well and your, your brain will probably be okay and I think debriefing is probably a big a big thing i think the ambulance service does it really poorly same again if i ever mention a debrief at the end of a any job really i'll debrief the most mundane job because there's always learning to be had but if you try and start a debrief at the end of a cardiac arrest i think you get a few funny looks so it's just a culture isn't it you've got to try and lead to debriefing and then i think humor really right that's what i've learned from my other mentor mike cowley it's just he used to walk into a room and lighten the whole atmosphere no matter what was going on obviously there's a time and a place but just a bit of humour, right? And just be human. Yeah, absolutely. Have you had any good leadership or mentors to guide you? So I think there's always, you know, someone senior in the military who you think I could, you know, I want to take a bit of his personality and add it to mine or her personality and add it to mine. Um, and I think just pick little bits of, you know, individual people. Obviously no one's perfect today, so you just got to pick the bits you like and try and adapt yourself to that. You know, the, the units I was in, people are always highly motivated. They're the most elite soldiers, you know, so you can take plenty, plenty just from that organisation. Um, even the medics I work with, you know, all very different characters from different backgrounds, different education, but all had the same end goal. So just take bits from each person, I think. There's no individual person, but 10% of Jamie Walsh is the, the motto at the moment. 
So Ken, you've obviously mentioned a few names and you've had some some great mentors in your student days. How much are we influenced by these people? Oh, massively. Uh, even Tex Connor now, he's my mentor. What I, I've not seen him for two years, but I think he's sick of me. <laughs> any job application, any query I have, I just text him, you know, sometimes I don't reply, right? But <laughs> but definitely shaped me as a clinician and probably, you know, personally. So these people have these people have gone through the same as us, right? Where they juggle work, life, family. So definitely don't just reap the clinical knowledge from them, just the, the, the life experience as well. And what traits and qualities do you value most in people? Oh, so I think honesty and integrity is probably one of the first ones, right? Um, not a fan of a bluffer at all. If you don't know, you don't know, just ask, right? Ask questions. That's how we, that's how we learn and better ourselves. Motivation. Don't like people. Well, don't like the characteristic doing a bare minimum we can always do more we all have bad days equally right I go to work some days and I'm just like let's just get through this without making a mistake but most days highly motivated let's get things done to the highest standard also let's push boundaries and challenge challenge people um, decisions guidelines policy because that's what makes the whole system better that's what makes us better it just makes life better doesn't it if things are improving I don't like the word change but improving definitely um, to just make it happen they're the qualities I like how has all your experiences shaped you into the person you are today well from a young 17 year old who just wanted to play football and I don't know cause chaos to, to where I am now I don't know how it's happened to honestly but definitely the military shapes you into probably a, an adult and then the people you work with obviously have an impact on you so, so certainly I, I don't even know where I'd be without without the last probably 10-12 years that should definitely shape me into the person I am today, which I hope is a good person. So what's next then, Kate? Get this master's done, get the dip done, continue progressing, you know, share the knowledge with students, peers, anyone you can, motivate people, you know, have an impact, whether that's in personal life, professional life, on patients or staff. Just drive things forward, really, for the positive, because there's a lot of negatives around in there at the moment. If you look at the news or all the systems, it's just improve things and make make things better for people. And also just enjoy family time, you know, enjoy time with Lindsay chilling and do some adventures. Not as adventurous as half the people that have been on these podcasts. You all do like <laughs> ice climbing and uh, mountaineering. Uh, I don't like being cold anymore. I like nice warm spaces, you know, <laughs> a fire or something. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that. Right, Kane. so we're going to move on to our quick fire questions. This is obviously something new to Paramedicast. Are you happy for us to ask these? Go ahead, go on. What's your biggest fear? Oh, the sea. The unknown was what's beneath you. Probably why I didn't last long in the hour in a lie. <laughs> if you weren't a paramedic, what would you be and why? Probably, probably a firefighter or something. They've got a good life, haven't they? <laughs> if you could go back to one moment in your career, what would it be? Probably be um, passing P Company because that was a hard six weeks of graft. Um, my body was broken after and... The feeling of getting a maroon berry at the end of that course was probably one, you know, I'd like to do again. Who's your biggest inspiration in life? Uh, I don't have a specific one. Probably my partner for tolerating the amount of time I spend in the office on my laptop. <laughs> <laughs> if you were to write a book, what would it be about? I think I think it'd be about probably getting the most out of individuals and, you know, using people's strengths. To, to get a job done so it'd probably be around that sort of psychological element I believe what is the best advice you have ever received 
just to never quit you know do what do what people can't think can't be done and just give it a go what trait most defines who you are I think I think humor humor I think everything I do has a bit of humor in you know I think it just improves the whole mood of any everyone around you especially when things are a bit difficult or tough just add a bit of humor and uh you know it normally moves things along and Kane, you've got a dog right yeah what's the dog's name Winnie the Rottweiler <laughs> what would Winnie say about you Oh, I'll give her too much cheese from the fridge when Lindsay's not around. <laughs> what is one missed opportunity that you wish you could have a second chance at? Um, I got I got offered a job in the military, um, which is probably like the senior medic position before I left. Um, and that if I took that job, I'd have probably projected my career forward five, six years as a paramedic. But I decided to leave instead. Don't regret it, but definitely could have taken it I'd have been a lot further ahead than I am where I am now thank you Kane. that's the end of our quick fire questions I've just got one last question so what piece of advice would you have to current student paramedics or newly qualified paramedics or even CMTs looking to follow in your footsteps so I think I, I think I said go on about it quite a lot but be honest if you don't know something you don't know someone will always tell you and you know like Jamie said the knowledge will come it just takes time if you're an NQP or a new paramedic or even experienced, just just refer back to ABCDE. If you're not sure and take them to hospital, do CPD, podcasts like this. There's plenty out there. It doesn't cost any money. Reach out to different organisations because people have all sorts of knowledge out there when you start rooting around. Just challenge yourself and also look after yourself. Like I said, healthy body, healthy mind, and you'll get through most things right. Payne, it's been great to chat with you. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sophie. Thank you.